Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Avi Cooper. How you doing, Hannah? Hello, hello. Avi? Hey. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> well, tonight, uh, we're going to investigate why catamenial pneumothoraces, or a pneumothorax that occurs during menstruation, well, they almost always occur on the right side. And I guess the question becomes, why don't they occur equally on both sides of the chest? And I feel like before we even dive into that question, Avi, you're going to have to explain to us a little bit about what causes a catamenial pneumothorax. So I'll give you guys one guess as to where we're going to start. I don't know, sometime many, many decades ago. (laughs) The evolution of fever. Yes, you know, the, uh, you know, when we became uh, land land animals. No. Um, <laughs> so we actually have to go back to 1958. Um, and Which is was nothing, a, by the way. That's woman. like barely going back this in is, time. Uh, yeah. I know. It's like half a second. Uh, <laughs> um, so there was a woman in 1958 who had this unfortunate year of her life where she developed monthly right-sided pneumothoraces. So basically every month she would get a pneumothorax in her right chest and she presented for evaluation (laughs) of this problem (laughs) and it always it always occurred during her menstrual cycle so finally after a year of this she underwent a thoracotomy and during the surgery the surgeons found that she had endometriosis and it involved the right hemidiaphragm so immediately there there seemed to be some link between endometriosis in the chest and her recurrent pneumothoraces. So they knew that the thorax had endometriosis in it and presumed that that was the cause of her recurrent pneumothoraces. Yes. Can we take a step back and can you explain what endometriosis really is? So endometriosis is extra uterine implantation of endometrial tissue. So it's like and it's endometrial tissue outside the uterus. And the, uh, the, the pelvis and the abdomen are the most common sites for the endometriosis to implant. But thoracic endometriosis is a known site for it to involve as well. And there are three main theories for how endometriosis can arise. And this would apply to the, the chest as well. You could have retrograde menstruation, where basically there's menstruation backward, like through the fallopian tubes, and that leads to abdominal pelvic spread, um, and then spreading elsewhere. You can have blood or like lymph lymph-borne dep- deposition, or metaplasia of local tissue where it changes to endometrial tissue. And so, and retrograde menstruation is thought to be the predominant mechanism for how endometriosis occurs in the, you know, in the abdomen and the pelvis. Um, but likely all three of these are playing some role. And what about for the the thoracic endometriosis, which it, it sounds like, you know, obviously that's what has to happen to get the pneumothorax. Is are these mechanisms all kind of at play for for that as well, for the thoracic site? Yeah. So it turns out that the thoracic cavity is the most common non-abdominal site for endometriosis to arise. And so implants can occur on the parenchyma of the lung or in the on the pleura. And it's been confirmed as the primary cause of up to 90% of catamenial pneumothoraces. So basically, for the most part, if you have a catamenial pneumothorax, um, it probably was due to thoracic endometriosis, sort of like we saw with that, that first case, that, that woman back in 1958. Okay. So we have 
the pleura, we have the endometrial implant. Where does the air come in? Like, why why does that lead to air? It's a fundamental question. <laughs> and it, it probably has to do with pleural disruption, which is sort of the common final pathway for all pneumothoraces. And, you know, in this specific context, the endometrial implants um, undergo changes during the secretory phase of the menstrual cycle in a process called decidualization. And these changes involve fibroblasts in the endometrium that transform into secretory cells and they have vascular changes. And then this that change disrupts the pleura and this can lead to pneumothorax or even more dramatically, it can even present with a hemothorax as well. Um, and so it can cause obviously real problems. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I, I find it like absolutely fascinating. And I'll be honest, somewhat surprising that, that the endometrial tissue that is now in the thorax still responds in the same manner to all the, the hormonal changes, even though it's not where it typically resides. But I don't think anything that you've mentioned so far explains the skewed predominance that we alluded to earlier for right-sided pneumothoraces, because it sounds like this is more a right-sided phenomenon than a left-sided phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, not, but not even just predominance. 90% of catamenial pneumothoraces are in the right chest. Like, you almost don't see it in the left side. <laughs> it's like if you see a pneumothorax in the left side, it's probably not catamenial. Um, you know, it's, if, it's almost always in the right chest. And it's a really striking laterality to see that. And so, you know, the first important thing to note is that people with thoracic endometriosis have abdominal pelvic involvement first. And so thoracic endometriosis is really thought to usually result from transit of endometrial cells from the abdomen and then going across the diaphragm. So that's kind of really the first thing that we need to understand. Okay, so these impolite implants are heading across the diaphragm into the right chest in some form or another. Is that is that the story? There seems like there is some transit happening. And so, and as we discussed before, the deposition from the blood and the lymph system as well as metaplasia where cells change locally. Those, again, those probably play a role, but right-sided predominance of thoracic endometriosis is almost certainly reflecting something something going on in the abdomen. All right, so you're obviously going to have to tell us what that something is. I think I do. So um, this was really <laughs> shocking to me, but there's actually a directionality to flow of fluid in the abdominal cavity. And Tony, I know that you've written about this before, so maybe you already knew this. Hannah, did you know about this before? I had not. I had not. It reminds me a little of the directionality of flow in the anterior chamber. Oh, yes. <laughs> but anyway, wait, can you explain yes. to us why? Well, this the, Honestly, that was really like totally surprising. I can't believe that like our bodies work this way. I felt the same way about this when I read it. I almost didn't believe it when I read it, but fluid flows in a clockwise fashion in the abdomen. So if you're starting in the pelvis, it goes up the right pericolic gutter to Morrison's pouch and then the right subdiaphragmatic space. And this was actually first demonstrated in 1970 by the use of peritonography, which is literally the <laughs> injection of radiographic <laughs> contrast dye into the abdomen and then like seeing what happens on x-ray and shooting plane films and like watching as it goes up. And so... Yeah, when they injected the dye, they basically saw that it goes up the right side. <laughs> That's it's clockwise. But is that only true if you live in the northern hemisphere? And if you're in the southern hemisphere, <laughs> actually, it's counterclockwise. <laughs> we'll have to ask our Australian friends if that <laughs> it works the same way. Okay, so 
But going back a second, why would this happen? <laughs> and why would it be clockwise? And why can't it be counterclockwise? Yeah, right. Exactly. So there, there are two questions there, right? So there's there's two questions within that question. One, why does peritoneal flow, fluid flow upward? You might not expect that because of, I don't know, gravity. And the other is why this clockwise direction? Why the right side of the abdomen that it travels upward? And so the answer to the first question about the upward direction of flow is because of the diaphragm. And so the diaphragm is a you know, really strong muscle and it acts sort of like a pump and it kind of, it's pump action as it's creating that negative pressure, it draws it, you know, it draws it upward. And there's probably also a role for the peristalsis from the ascending colon, right? Because that's going from bottom to top of the abdomen as well. It's peristalsing upward in the ascending colon. So the combination of those two are probably why it's drawing it upward. And so, you know, the pump action of the diaphragm was established way back in 1948 when there were pressure gradients in the abdomen were studied in a paper aptly called intraperitoneal pressure in the human, I think because it had followed some animal studies. <laughs> but the study found that with respiration, the diaphragm creates a gradient between the upper and lower abdomen with the lowest pressures just under the diaphragm. And again, this sort of makes sense because that's what the diaphragm does. It creates pressure gradients in the chest to allow us to breathe. So it's transmitting those pressure gradients across itself and it's drawing fluid upward toward it, toward the diaphragm. And again, like we talked about, peristalsis is probably also playing a role too. So that makes sense, you know, why the fluid might flow from the pelvis up to the diaphragm, but that doesn't necessarily explain the the, the clockwise flow. Is the, so is there something else to the? Because I, I still am old. I, I've seen this too in in other contexts, and I read the tutorial on this, but I still kind of don't believe it. So you're going to have to say a little bit more. Yeah, it's. I was so fascinated that it's clockwise, and so the answer is maybe not surprisingly, it's purely anatomical, and so. There are two structures that sort of force fluid to go right to left or clockwise within the abdomen. And so the first is the falciform ligament, which you may recall um, is the fibrous structure that connects the anterior portions of the liver to the abdominal wall. It kind of juts out across from liver to abdominal wall. And the second is the colon, specifically the transverse and sigmoid segments of the colon. So remember that these are the parts of the colon that are intraperitoneal. So they sort of jut out there and more than the um, ascending colon does. And so both of these structures effectively just block the flow of fluid across the abdomen and they sort of force as the fluid is being pumped upward by the diaphragm, it causes a preferential, you know, rightward flow essentially. It's gonna travel up the right side and hit the right hemidiaphragm first. And I just, I don't know, I was just blown away by the fact that this is the way our, our abdomens work. <laughs> I feel, I feel like I should sense that in my, in my abdomen, but I, I definitely, I definitely right. don't. I'm not going to believe exactly. it until I like know it's there. But the peritonography, the right. peritonography. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and, I, and also I'm un, uh, wholly unaware of the flow in the anterior chamber of my eyeball. So I, and I accept it. Speak for yourself, Tony. Speak for yourself. All right. So if I were going to just like imagine myself as one of these endometrial cells, I would be coming sort of through retrograde menstruation through the fallopian tubes into the abdominal cavity, being swept up in a great intra-abdominal current. And then I would come up and then first hit the right diaphragm. Is that the idea? That the ones that are essentially contacting the right diaphragm preferentially may then be going into the right pleural cavity? Yes, that's it. That's exactly right. The combination of the diaphragm pump the falciform ligament 
and the transverse and sigmoid colon segments all sort of conspire <laughs> to have endometrial cells preferentially contact the right hemidiaphragm first. So they're going to therefore transit across it into the right pleural space, implant on the pleura, and then during menstruation can predispose to pneumothorax um, or hemothorax. And so that's it. That's why these, that's why catamenia pneumothorax is on the right side. It's just anatomy. (laughs) And so, you know, a a, a similar physiology explains the right-sided predilection for hepatic hydrothoraces as well. And Tony, I know that you've written your own thread about this kind of related question. So do you mind explaining that a little bit further? Yeah, obviously I'll make this brief, but um, one interesting thing is it's not nearly as um, skewed towards the right side. You know, one study, the skew was like 75% right-sided hepatic hydrothorax and about 10% were bilateral versus 90% for um, catamenial normothoraces, which is like crazy one-sided. But I think the explanation that I found there in addition to this insane flow (laughs) that you described was that what allows the fluid to, in in this case, the, the ascites to flow into the thorax are defects in the diaphragm, in particular, the tendinous portion of the diaphragm, which happens to be larger on the right side. So because the it's the tendon that appears to be the site of transit across the diaphragm, and because the tendon is larger on the right side, the theory goes, that's why hepatic hydrothorax is more common on the right. I don't know that that's been proved, but that's, I think, one of the leading, if not the leading hypothesis. And it would make sense that that would also, with endometrial cells, make it easier yeah. to transit the right hemidiaphragm, kind of like you're... Oh, for sure. You know, like, like you're saying. So they all come into yes. anatomy. <laughs> so Avi, will you share with us your take-home points about the wild world of <laughs> catamenial pneumothoraces? It's just crazy that like this is how it works and that for me, at least, I I was just blown away when I read about the fact that we have clockwise flow in our abdomen. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, really? This is actually how it works. So, um, But my take-home points are that catomenial pneumothorax results from thoracic endometriosis and it's almost always right-sided. And endometriosis can lead to pleural disruption causing pneumothorax, specifically during menstruation. And the right-sided propensity results from clockwise peritoneal fluid flow, which leads to a predilection for contact of endometrial cells with the right diaphragm preferentially. And this clockwise peritoneal flow results from a combination of pump action by the diaphragm and the ascending colon's peristalsis. And then that leads to upward flow in the abdomen. And then you have anatomic limitation by the falciform ligament and the transverse and sigmoid cold segments, which all leads to clockwise abdominal flow. Thank you, anatomy. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. All right. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. And as a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. So for more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org forward slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and certainly does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we have been the Curious Clinicians. We'll see you later. Bye.